If you look at the front of your notebook, I just want to review. We went over these things the very first time we got together. But the name of this ministry is Wellspring. And that comes from Proverbs 4.23, which says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And a wellspring is a head or a source of a spring or a river. It signifies a source or supply of anything. So when Proverbs 4.23 says to guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life, it's saying that all of life flows from the heart. There's nothing that comes out of us that didn't first reside in our heart. The heart is the source of our motives and our desires, our will, our intentions, our thoughts, our words, everything. And so our logo, the picture you see there, conveys that with a continual flow of water from an unseen source, just like everything flows from our heart. In addition, it conveys that Wellspring is a ministry for women. And it ties us back to Titus 2 with the idea of one generation pouring into another. And I wanted to remind us of that today because we've talked a lot about the heart this year. We've talked a lot about our home. And and today we have our final lesson on Discipline 3, ministry. And so this is helping us think about how do I pour into the lives of others with what Christ has done in me. Now, knowing that about our logo, about this picture, I hope helps us every time we look at our notebook, every time you see the little picture on your handouts, maybe your bookmark you got at Christmas time, will help us remember how crucial it is that we guard our own hearts so that what we're pouring into others is good and it's pure, and it's lovely, and it's grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So go ahead now and turn your notebook over. Now we'll look at the back of it. You see there that our Wellspring purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live out the gospel, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. The goal of Wellspring is to take us as women who follow Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, women whose church home is Grace Bible Church, and accomplish this purpose in our lives through these three disciplines. Our Grace Bible Church elders desire that we would be women with a united understanding of what it looks like to pursue spiritual growth and to effectively minister to and disciple one another toward Jesus Christ. Our elders desire to see those who are involved in ministry at Grace Bible Church united around these disciplines so that whether it's the men in BUILD or the kids in student ministries or it's us here in Wellspring, even the focus in our small groups um, or you're meeting with a friend or you're shepherding or mentoring Um, That we're all thinking in terms of these same disciplines. That we're starting with, how is my own heart interacting with God over his word? And then looking at everything else as flowing from that. Now, why these disciplines? 
Well, it's important to understand that the Wellspring Disciplines are a framework that help us get our minds around what God says in his word. We've said this before. They don't stand apart from God's word. They certainly aren't above God's word. They stand under God's word. They're just an effort to describe the priorities that God describes in his word for believers. These disciplines are just the way we try to describe that here at Wellspring and here at Grace Bible Church. They're meant to be helpful, to unite us. And we want to be careful not to be prideful in that, not to be prideful toward another church or towards women who aren't in Wellspring, but just to use them as a tool for shepherding our own hearts and for ministering to others. And so they're just a tool for that end, and they can be a really helpful tool. So Discipline 1 says she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the Word of God, and in particular, the Gospel. We must shepherd our hearts to the Word of God to get the God of the Word. That's the key. And we've talked a lot about this this year. We've talked a lot about being in the Word, about reading all of our Bibles. That's why we have a Bible reading plan. And we all probably have fought the temptation just to check a box. Okay, good, done. I read my Bible today. And that's the last thing we should be aiming for. We should never be satisfied if that's all we're doing when we're in the Word. Because our goal in reading all of God's Word is to get Jesus. We want to be with our Savior. So we must be women who prayerfully shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ through the Word of God. It's possible to read our Bibles every day, to study our Bibles without it affecting our hearts. And that's why we must discipline ourselves as we come to the Word of God that our heart attitude would be, Oh Lord, don't let me miss you. Don't let me miss you. Because if we don't draw near to Him, we'll draw up. Dry up. We can dry up even being in His Word if we're not drawing near to Him when we're in His Word with Him. We must have Christ. That's the kind of women we must just long to be and and prayerfully seek God to make us. Because everything flows from that. If we're not in the word, if we're not seeking Christ in his word, what will we have to say to the people in our lives, the people we live with, the people in our families, the people we work with, the people we go to school with? How can we come along beside the people in our small group and help them And bring them hope if we haven't been bringing our hearts to the word of God, to meet with God. To know him, to hear from him, to love him, to be transformed by him. But if we are getting Jesus as we go to the word, then we have much to give. We will be the aroma of Christ. And we've seen throughout the year, again, that everything flows from discipline one. If we get discipline one, then the other disciplines will come. But if we miss this one, the other ones are bankrupt. They're just going to be empty. And so that's why we have spent so much time talking about discipline one, the heart. And it's why we keep coming back to it. It's why Tom came and taught us last week, again, talking about our hearts. Now, discipline two, then, is the home. It says she ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. And as women, we need to understand and we need to never forget the influence that we have on our home. 
and on our family. A godly woman places a priority on spiritually influencing her household with her heart for Christ. We see the people we live with more consistently than anyone else. It doesn't matter if it's a roommate or brother or sister, parents, your kids, your husband, your grandkids. These relationships need to be a priority. We need to be making sure that we are bringing bringing Christ and bringing the gospel to them, being an aroma of Christ and making an impact there. You guys all know by now that Scott Maxwell has brought the phrase to us that we don't want to play leapfrog. We don't want to leapfrog over our own hearts and we can't leapfrog over those closest relationships, our family and our home relationships, on our way to other ministry. And we've seen this year that scripture has a lot to say about the home. That our homes, our households, our family relationships are strategic tools in the ministry of the church. And regardless of the role that we have in our household, um, that still applies. You know, we're a really diverse group of women. We represent a lot of ages and stages. We may live with believers or unbelievers. We may live alone. We might be in a season of life where we have family responsibilities to those who don't live with us, our parents or our grandkids. And I love that. That's what God does in the body of Christ. He puts us all together in the same body to help us where we help each other grow and help each other be more effective in those relationships he's given us. Before we are married, before we're single, before we're mothers or grandmothers, we are the body of Christ. He is our bond. And so we have that profound opportunity to display Christ as we practice taking our heart for Christ to those closest to us. And that brings us to Discipline 3 Ministry. This is where we're going to focus today. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her home, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. See, the body of Christ needs us to be women who believe God's word and who practice God's word in shepherding our own hearts and in our own homes so that we are equipped to be fruitful in our ministry to others. And that's why our leaders here at Grace Bible Church have put these disciplines out in front of us to help us establish priorities. Remember, the heart is the wellspring. It's the wellspring of life. Everything flows from discipline one. If our heart is full of God because of the word of God and we're caring for our households with our heart for God, then we will be effective. We will be fruitful ministers to those in our church and beyond our church. And so you know that what we're not saying is that we've got to get discipline one all sewn up before you can work on the others, right? These are disciplines that piggyback on one another. We don't skip over one, but we're always making sure we're caring well for our hearts and our households as we step into the lives of others. Now one more note I just want to make sure um, that we're all on the same page with, and that is what do we mean when we say ministry? You know, sometimes ministry includes a particular role or task, and I think we're, we can be prone to think of ministry as, well, well, we have a minister, like our pastor is our minister, and he's in ministry. He gets paid to do ministry, and that's what ministry is somehow. Um, and that certainly is ministry, but ministry 
as we talk about it right now, as what it talks about to be a minister of the gospel, as a follower of Jesus Christ, is much broader than that. Uh, ministry is really a mindset of being eager to live every aspect of our lives as slaves of Christ. It's how we think and listen and speak and work that we are living as those who are eager to bring the gospel to bear, to be available to serve the Lord in any way he would choose. And so I want to just encourage all of us to pray and ask God to make us effective in every place he gives us to minister, in our own homes, in our own families, in our church, in our small group, and beyond that, wherever God gives you opportunity that he would make us women that he wants to use to bring him glory and that we would continue to do that in the summer and next year that this wouldn't be something that just ends when wellspring ends but that it's a lifestyle that we would continue to grow in. Okay, so those are the disciplines. took a little longer on that than we sometimes do but I just wanted to remember, I needed to remember, this is why we're here. This is, what we're, this is why we're doing what we're doing. Now today we're going back to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Last time, if you were here, you know we had Tom Angstead to teach us from Galatians. And I hope that that has been as helpful and as encouraging to you as it was to me. If you didn't get to hear that, I really encourage you to listen online. And the assignment was really good. If you didn't get to do his assignment, go back and look at that. It was really helpful. But the time before that, we were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we were looking at the example of Paul for gospel-centered ministry. So if you haven't already, go ahead and open up your Bible to 1 Thessalonians. If you recall, Paul was in Thessalonica at most three months and a minimum of three weeks. And a church had been born. But Paul had kind of been chased out of town and there were troublemakers in Thessalonica slandering Paul's reputation. And that's why we saw in 1 Thessalonians 1 that as important as the gospel message is, and it is important, that it's not Paul's leading concern in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2. He was more concerned to talk not about the content of the message, but the carrier of the message. Paul's reputation mattered for the sake of the gospel. If Paul was discredited, then the gospel message itself would be discredited. And so as we move into 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 today, we'll see that as he reminds them of his time with them, he frequently starts by reminding them of what he didn't do, quite possibly because he's responding to the slander, to the accusations. And then he'll contrast that with what is true, what he really was like. Now, I can't speak for Paul, but most of us find slander very hard. To take. It's easy to feel defensive or maybe just want to kind of step back and avoid the conflict. We might feel a little self-righteous. You know, what did I do to deserve this? Um, but what a lesson for us that when Paul encountered this kind of opposition, his heart was to shepherd. His concern was for the faith of these new believers in Thessalonica. And so he wrote this letter and reminded them of the kind of gospel minister he was to make sure that the gospel message itself was not discredited. And so 2,000 years later, we get the benefit. 
1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 are full of principles for ministry that flow out of Paul's example. And again, just we're going to review what we saw in 1 Thessalonians 1. We're going to walk through 12 verses in chapter 2. There's a lot here. And I, I really just want to encourage you to um, think about these prayerfully. Ask the Lord to impress the ones on your heart that where he just really wants to grow you and help you uh, grow as a gospel minister. These are really practical, even though they're taken from the life of Paul. And somehow when I think that, I kind of want to take him and set him over there and say, well, that's, that's Paul. But the principles that flow out of how he ministered are just so practical and helpful and only show us more how badly we need to rely on Christ and uh, the kind of ministers he wants to make out of us. So be encouraged. Let these be practical and helpful right in the relationships that you're in today. So in 1 Thessalonians 1, we identified five ministry statements. You have them there again on your notes. We saw that ministry has only one message, and it's the gospel. And we saw that that was Paul's message, whether he was teaching believers or unbelievers. And so that means that the gospel is our message as well. Ministry requires an uncommon messenger. That was the second uh, statement we saw. We saw, number three, that ministry involves imitation. Number four, that ministry must produce not only exemplary lives, but effective lives. We want to see those that we invest in become fruitful. And then number five, ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. And we'll see uh, some of those points. We'll see them reviewed and expanded on in some of the principles from chapter two today. So today as we walk through chapter 2, we're going to study with one foot in the text, if you will. We really want to try to understand what Paul's saying and why he's saying it. But at the same time, we want to have one foot back in our own lives, looking for what we can learn from Paul to help us be more gospel-centered servants of Jesus Christ. Okay. So you see in your notes, as we go through, we'll identify 12 gospel-centered principles for ministry, and those are in bold throughout your notes. Um, They're there to help us apply what Paul's saying. And you'll also see some questions that are there in italic. And you'll look back at both the principles and the questions when you do your assignment from this week. Uh, Most of the questions we actually won't talk about as we go through the lesson. The lesson's just really full without taking the time to talk about all of those. But they're there to help you go back and evaluate and apply the lesson when you do your assignment. All right. So let's read... 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. We'll read the whole passage, then we'll come back and we'll break it down. Now, um, I want just one more thing before we read it, and that is that we see we a lot here, or our. It's a plural first-person pronoun. And that's Paul. You see in chapter 1, verse 1, it's Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy. And at times in our lesson today, you'll hear me just say Paul, just because it's a little easier than saying all of them. But... I just want to be clear that that it's all three of them writing and ministering together, and and Paul was their leader. Um, So verse 1, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming view was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, who examines our hearts. 
For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I love this passage. Well, let's go back and look at verse 1. He begins, For you yourselves know, brethren. Paul opens this chapter by appealing to what the Thessalonians already know to be true about him and his time with them and his ministry with them. And he began this appeal back in chapter 1, verse 5, where he said, Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. In chapter 2, he makes the same appeal over and over again. Verse 2, he says, as you know. Verse 5, again, he says, as you know. Verse 9, he says, you recall. Verse 10, you are witnesses. Verse 11, just as you know. Paul is underscoring the point that they don't need to look any further than their own memory to verify the truth of what he's saying. He's not trying to convince them of anything. He's not asking them just to take his word for it. They know that these things are true. They just need to think back on their time with him. And in my mind, that just begs me to ask the question, can I do that? And that's question one in your notes. What do people know of my life that testifies to the gospel in word and deed. Can we appeal to those that we minister to? Could we say to our husband or our children or to the women in our small group or the people we work with and say, you know, could I say, think back on what you know of me and of the time that we've spent together and that will give evidence of a life that testifies to the gospel in word and in deed. Like in Titus 2, remember that lesson where we saw that the whole point of living as Paul described was that the word of God wouldn't be dishonored, that the gospel would be adorned. That's a challenging thought, isn't it? But that's Paul's example here. He says, you know. Now verse 1, he continues and tells them what it is that they already know. He says, you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But after we'd already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, there it is again, we had the boldness in our God to speak to the gospel of God amid much opposition. So he has two reminders for them. First was that his coming to them with Sylvanus and Timothy was not in vain. And then the second thing is that he and Sylvanus and Timothy had boldness. That's the main thought there. And you see he actually uses the word but to join these ideas, he says our coming to you was not in vain, but 
And he says that because they're kind of opposites. They're a contrast. And together together they give a more complete picture of uh, what he's saying about the time that he was with them. So let's look at these one at a time. First of all, our coming to you was not in vain. Now vain means hollow. It means empty. It means to be found wanting in purpose or wanting in earnestness. And Paul says, that is not how we came to you. Our time with you wasn't marked by emptiness. It was marked by fullness. And then a second point complements that idea where he says, we had boldness. And what was it they were bold about? Well, verse 2 says, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. They had boldness to speak the gospel. And that word boldness literally just means all speech. And it's only used in the New Testament when talking about gospel proclamation. It's saying that the gospel just flowed freely from Paul. He could speak the gospel with confidence. He wasn't rattled or ruffled by his circumstances. And that's why Paul could say that his time with them was not in vain, that it wasn't empty. It wasn't hollow. It's because he spoke the gospel. And he spoke it boldly. And so you can see that our first principle in our outline there is that the gospel protects relationships from being hollow. Relationships are full when they are full of the gospel in both word, as we see here, and also in how we care for others, as we'll see as we move through the passage. But what makes this all the more remarkable is the circumstances in which this happened. Look again at verse 2. Paul writes, But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak the gospel of God amid much opposition. Acts 16 tells us that in Philippi, Paul's persecution began when he cast an evil spirit out of a slave girl. He and Silas were seized and dragged before authorities. They were falsely accused. They were beaten with rods without a trial. They had their civil rights as Roman citizens violated. They were thrown into prison. And then the Philippians decided they didn't want him around and so... They, were, they had to leave. So there's no doubt they suffered. And we see this pattern of suffering throughout the New Testament. And so that's actually why we have principle three. We'll come back to principle two in a minute. But suffering and opposition in gospel ministry shouldn't be unexpected. It's so easy for us to be surprised by it, isn't it? But we shouldn't be. It's to be expected. Now for Paul, even with this kind of mistreatment in Philippi, And then with much opposition in Thessalonica, he still spoke the gospel boldly. Isn't that amazing? Now normally, don't we think the opposite would happen? That's why people get persecuted, right? It's because the intent is to silence men and women. To break them. So the fact that Paul wasn't silenced, but in fact that he spoke the gospel boldly, is evidence of God's work in him. In fact, he says that. He says we had boldness in our God. And that's the second principle on your outline. God is the source of gospel boldness. It's not because of Paul's bold personality or his natural ability. 
It's God's power at work within Paul. And that is why he is unhindered by suffering and mistreatment and opposition. All he can think as he's leaving Philippi and he's heading to Thessalonica is, where else can I lead people captive to Christ? Where can I proclaim the gospel? That is challenging, isn't it? We can be so easily inclined to shrink back, to just kind of want to be liked. It's so easy to give in to fear and not say anything, or at least maybe to be kind of PC, be relevant. And that's tempting even when there's not opposition, isn't there? But this passage offers us hope. It offers hopes to cowards like me. And if you struggle with boldness, it offers hope to you too. Because this is a boldness that God produces in his people. It's a boldness that comes from our union with Christ. From being so consumed with the gospel, so focused on the gospel, that we are just ready to speak like Paul was. And the fact that it comes from God, that this boldness is in our God, means that it's displayed all the more when we are bold in the face of opposition. It has to be from God because we don't have that in ourselves. And that's why we must seek God for gospel boldness. Seeing this boldness in our God that Paul had makes me want to be a lot more intentional when I meet with God in his word. And maybe you too need to daily ask him for that boldness and ask him to prepare us with his word and so to so have the gospel as our focus that it just comes out at every opportunity that we're ready well that was Roman numeral 2 what the Thessalonians knew about Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy's ministry and that brings us to Roman numeral 3 why the messengers were bold Paul has just appealed to the Thessalonians to remember that his coming was not empty, but that he had boldness to speak the gospel in that opposition. And now he wants to explain to them why he was so bold, what his boldness reveals. So verses 3 and 4 he writes, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Again, he may be addressing his critics here. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God, who examines our hearts. Paul wants them to see that his boldness to preach the gospel reveals something about his, me- about his message and about his mission. So let's break it down and see what exactly was behind his gospel boldness. So first of all, he tells us what his exhortation wasn't. Verse 3 begins, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Now, just think about it for a minute. If it did, if his message did come from error, if his message was impure, if he was trying to deceive, would he keep speaking it with this kind of mistreatment and suffering? No, he was bold in the face of opposition. That testifies to the fact that his message was pure. Paul's exhortation was not from error. It wasn't a false message. It's true. Paul spoke the truth. And his message was not from impurity. Paul's life had integrity. He was upright. And it was not by way of deceit. His ministry was honest. 
didn't have hypocrisy, didn't have deception. He wasn't motivated by anything other than the gospel. And in verse 4, he continues to explain what his boldness says about his ministry. His exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but, verse 4, just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Now, the main idea in that sentence is, we speak. But you can see he uses a lot of words to explain how they speak. He uses the word as several times, which shows he's giving some comparisons. He's going to a lot of effort to help them understand something about their speaking and why they were so bold. Now, Scott Maxwell teaches this verse by describing it as a sandwich. And you have a picture of it there in your notes. And by that, he means that there's a thought at the beginning of the verse that Paul repeats at the end of the verse. And that's the bread. It's where he starts and it's where he ends. And then in the middle is the meat. It's the main idea. It's what the bread is really pointing to. So here at the beginning of the verse is the phrase, have been approved. And at the end of the verse, you see the word examine. And they're actually the same word in the Greek. So verse 4 begins and ends with this idea of being approved or examined by God. That's the bread. It's the verb that means being tested for the purpose of refining. So let's talk for a minute just about what that means. What does this word to be tested or refined really describe? It was the same word used for purifying metal. They would take a piece of metal and they would put it to the fire and as it heated up, all the dross and the worthless scum and the impurities would rise to the surface and they would skim all of that off and they would continue to heat that metal and they would continue to take off all those impurities until the refiner could look into the metal and see his own reflection. And that meant the impurities were out. At that point, it was pure. Now, think about this. They didn't put the metal to the fire because they wanted to destroy it. That's not why metal is refined, is it? They heated it because they wanted to make it pure. And so the idea with this word to approve or to examine, to test, is not to test us, just to condemn us. But it's for the purpose of purifying us. It's revealing the impurities so they can be removed. It's getting rid of impurities so that his reflection can be seen in us. And this is an ongoing process. So it's a good thing. It's God's gracious hand toward us. Is it pleasant? Not always. Maybe not most of the time. It can be really painful. But it's not for the purpose of destroying us. It's for the purpose of purifying us so we can be more like Christ. And so it's a very loving thing that God does, even though it may not feel like it at the time. Paul is saying, I'm a man who's, who God has examined and who continues to be purified by God. Paul lives as a man who knows that God examines his heart. So that's the bread. Verse 4 starts and ends with this idea of being examined by God. 
Now what goes on in between that examination? Well, look where verse 4 says, To be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. To be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. And that's the meat. And that gives us another principle for gospel ministry. God tests us to entrust us with the gospel. As believers, we have been entrusted with the gospel. And so we too must live as women who know that God examines our hearts. And how do we live that way? Well, what else is there but discipline one? We've been entrusted with the gospel. That's why we preach it to our own hearts. It's why we flee to God's word and say, God, I need you. The gospel is what prepares us to endure God's refining and benefit from God's refining so that we are more fruitful, effective proclaimers of the gospel. At home, at work, small group, in our community, wherever God places us. And because Paul understood that it was God who examined him, he made the most of his time with the Thessalonians. The fullness of his time with them and his boldness to speak the gospel were motivated by the fact that God was the one he was serving. He couldn't give up, even in the face of opposition, because God was the one he was aiming to please. Well, that brings us to Roman numeral four, where we're going to look at how the messengers showed that they were God-approved gospel messengers. Now, in verse five, Paul continues to appeal to what they know to be true and uh, true about him, just in case anyone finishes verse four, where Paul has just said we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, and they think, now, how do we know that? How would we really know if Paul was entrusted by God with the gospel? So Paul wants to be sure that he leaves no room for doubt. Now, so far in verses 1 through 4, Paul's focus has been primarily on his gospel proclamation. Verse 2, he had boldness to speak the gospel. Verse 3, he defends his exhortation, what he said. Verse uh, verse 4, he speaks as one approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. But we're going to see as we move on that Paul is going to point not only to his message, but also to his motive and his manner when he was with them. And that is what shows, that's the evidence that Paul puts forth to show that he is approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So he continues in verses 5 and 6, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. So what is it that Paul wants them to remember, to think back on, that will remind them and assure them that he was entrusted with the gospel by God so they can believe what he said? Well, the first thing is that he didn't come with flattering speech. He was sincere. In the course of his work, they could just see it. It's the kind of man he was. He wasn't manipulative. He wasn't trying to get something. And he wasn't trying to hide anything. Paul wouldn't descend to flattery in order to make the gospel acceptable. And our lives also bear witness that we have been approved by God with his gospel 
when we don't compromise the gospel. And you have that in your notes as principle five. You know, it can be tempting to try to make the message a little more palatable because it's just not very flattering to talk to someone about sin, to help them understand that their good deeds that they do in their own strength are just like filthy trash. And that apart from Christ, everyone suppresses the true knowledge of God. That's not flattering. But Paul didn't compromise. He didn't hold back. When he spoke with boldness, remember that word means all speech. He spoke all of the gospel. He didn't hold back the whole truth of the gospel for the sake of flattering them. Maybe hoping that they'd like him a little better if he softened the message. And the Thessalonians know this is true about him. So the first evidence that he's approved by God is that he wasn't a flatterer. And if that isn't enough, he says that God is his witness, that he didn't come with a pretext for greed. Now, pretext is the idea of hiding our true motives, to put on a mask, to cover something up in order to satisfy our greed. Paul didn't flatter them with the real intent of getting something. He wasn't using them to gain fame or fortune. That's not what he was doing, although he may have been accused of that. God is his witness that he wasn't in ministry for what he could gain. His motives are pure. So where do we need to guard against greed? Our greed may not be for money, but it could be for other things, like approval, Compliments, acceptance, recognition, control. But the gospel calls us and God enables us to drop those masks. To drop the self-serving, to drop the self-grasping masks and just seek to please the Lord. And when we do, we will have genuine concern for others instead of ourselves. Again, it's about our hearts, about our motives. Now, it's interesting, as we work our way through this passage, that Paul repeatedly appeals to God as his witness. Paul has this awareness that God was present, as much as he was aware of the fact that men were watching. And we already saw it in verse 4 when he said, We speak not as pleasing men, but God, who examines our hearts. And then again in verse 5, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. And we'll see it again in verse 10. He'll say, you are witnesses, and so is God. God is the primary audience in Paul's ministry. And God is the primary audience in any gospel-centered ministry. And that's principle six in your outline. God is the primary audience in gospel-centered ministry. And we just don't want to lose sight of that. Well, that brings us on to verse six, number four. that they didn't seek glory as apostles and how they used their authority, Paul continues to offer evidence that he was approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So in verse 6 we read, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though, as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. They had authority. They were apostles of Christ. Paul had seen our risen Lord. And yet, Paul knew that it wasn't about him or his authority. 
Because God was central in Paul's ministry, he didn't use his authority in a way that would have lorded it over anyone. He didn't use it in a way that expected some kind of recognition or compensation. And wherever we might have any authority as gospel messengers, it's not about us. Remember, God is the primary audience. Now you see a statement there in your notes. It says, any authority I might possess in ministry or anywhere is not about me. Authority in ministry is always to be exercised under the approval, the pleasure, and the witness of God. Our first resort in ministry must not be the exertion of our authority for authority's sake. And again, like we keep coming back to over and over again, it's about our heart. Having a humble heart. Understanding who we are in Christ. Authority is good. Authority is God-given. And when we are in a role of authority, we do need to exercise that authority. But... If we're going to be Christ-like in the use of that authority, then we need to use that authority with humility and with gentleness for the benefit of others, not ourselves. That is gospel-centered ministry. Lori, do you mind closing that door? Thank you. In 2 Corinthians 13.10, Paul said that the Lord gave him authority for building up and not for tearing down. So where might we build up or tear down perhaps in our parenting in our shepherding the gospel compels us its power in us leads us to use authority the way Jesus did he is our greatest example Mark 10.45 says that the son of man did not come to be served but to serve he is the one with all Authority, And he took the form of a slave. That's in Philippians 2. We've looked at that several times this year. He was in the form of God and he took on the form of slave. A slave. But that's what authority is supposed to do. That's what God does. That's who God is. And he is a humble God in Christ Jesus. And when he saves sinners and he draws us to himself and then he sends us out in his name... We are to be humble as well, even in the use of our authority. Okay, that's a good place for us to take a little break. Go ahead and get something to eat, use the bathroom, and we'll start again in five or maybe about eight o'clock, is what, according to my watch. Okay, so at nine o'clock, according to that clock. All right, nice to be back with you. All right, so we just got done looking at verses 5 and 6, where Paul has been reminding them of what he was like when he was with them, to show them that he really was one living to please God, as that he was one who was approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And everything he has said so far has been about what he didn't do, Remember, there were slanderers attacking Paul's ministry, and so he may very well have been responding to their accusations. And so in verse 7, he continues to remind them of what they know 
that will assure them that Paul really is a gospel minister to be trusted. Now stop for just a minute and think about the kind of credentials that we might tend to look for or that we might want to offer others. We might point to education or how much we know or who we know or whose books we've read. What tends to be admired even in the Christian community? Might we ask how big someone's ministry is? How many converts they have? How many churches they've planted? How many people bought their book? How many friends they have on Facebook? Right? (laughs) And if our tendency is to think that way, what Paul says should blow our minds. It's a contrast with what he said in verses 5 and 6. He said, we didn't flatter, we weren't greedy, we didn't seek glory by asserting our authority, but in verse 7, we proved to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Wow. Hey, Paul, how do we know you were proved by God to be entrusted with the gospel? Here's how. We were gentle. And look at the comparison he uses to make sure they don't miss what he means. This is not just some kind of a macho guy gentle who's not afraid to cry or something. He's not just saying we have a softer side. (laughs) He says our gentleness can be understood by thinking about the gentleness that must be present if you see a nursing mother tenderly caring for her own children. A nursing mother tenderly giving life to her infant, making herself available, spending herself for her baby. It's the love that spares nothing. And he says, we ministered like that. And who does the verse say she's tenderly caring for? For her own children. Plural. As she cares for this nursing baby, she's also tenderly caring for her other children. Even if you have never nursed a baby, most of us have probably been in the situation where there were multiple children looking to us to meet their needs. And if we are to tenderly care for those children, we must be gentle. There is no tenderness without gentleness. So if Paul would look to the tender care of a mother to exemplify gentleness, let's just think about discipline too for a minute. Is that what characterizes our relationships in our family, our home? What comes out when we're interrupted? When everybody else seems to think that their needs are more important than what we, what we think we need? What comes out when someone needs care when it's not convenient? Nursing a baby isn't always convenient, is it? Is it tender care? You know, these I find to be convicting questions. But let's not forget that the gospel is what gives us hope. I encourage you to look back at the notes from Tom's lesson if, if, um, if you find those kind of questions convicting as well. He talked about this. When we see a lack of the Spirit's fruit in our lives, we can confess it 
And we can believe God's word. When 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is hope in that. There is hope for forgiveness. There is hope for change. But back in our passage, now Paul is saying the way you can know that we are God's servants is not that we threw our weight and our authority around. No, you can tell by our gentleness, the kind of gentleness that must be present when a nursing mother is tenderly caring for her baby and for all of her children. And that is a stark contrast. They were men with authority, and he says we were like a gentle nursing mother. They were tender, loving, patient, self-giving. They made themselves available. They were meeting needs in a way that was appropriate for these spiritual babies. So you see principle seven in your notes. Gospel-centered ministry is characterized by motherly gentleness. Now, isn't that helpful to understanding how to extend gospel care and ministry to those in our lives, in our families, with our own children, with our friends, with our brothers and sisters, in our churches? What a testimony to the work of the gospel in our own lives when we make ourselves available to others, when we humble ourselves and remember our own struggle with sin and what Christ has done for us. Instead of throwing authority around or using harsh words or a harsh tone or getting exasperated, we come alongside and we bring the gospel like a gentle, tender mother. The gospel is the milk they need. It's what changes us, right? It's what nourishes us. And it's what others need for nourishment too. That is gospel-centered ministry, to gently care for others with the gospel. So that brings us to number six, where Paul kind of summarizes. In verses five through seven, Paul has offered some very convincing proofs for the fact that he has been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. He didn't flatter. He wasn't greedy. He didn't throw his authority around. And he was gentle. And in verse 8, he underscores the kind of man he was when he was with them by summing up what he has said in verses 5 through 7. So he writes in verse 8, Having so fond of an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you had become very dear to us. So here's another sandwich. What's the bread? How does the verse start? He says he had fond affection for them. And then look at how the verse ends. He says they were very dear to him. Now, so, I'm sorry, both of those are basically saying the same thing. That's the bread. There's fond affection, and they were very dear to him. Now, what's in the middle? What's the meat? What is that affection pointing to? He says, we were pleased, well pleased to impart the gospel and our own lives. Now remember, Paul didn't even know these people before he got to Thessalonica. But as he ministered there, even though he was with them a very short time, the gospel produced in him 
a love and affection for them. Now look back at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Watch this and remember how Paul said the gospel came in these verses. He wrote, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Paul was relentless. He had a boldness in the proclamation of the gospel, for sure. But we get to verse 8, and we see this fond affection. Paul says, you've become so dear to us, we want to impart to you not only the gospel, but also our own lives. And that gives us principle 8. Gospel ministry will be satisfied with nothing less than deep affection for people. Boldness and affection go together. There's gospel content and there's gospel care, personal involvement, and we need to give both. Our goal is to give people the gospel. We must give out the content of the gospel without compromise. That's where the hope is. But that should never be disconnected from genuine love and care for people. And we all probably tend to lean toward one or the other. We might favor one to the exclusion of the other. Sometimes we may be very focused on being sure we give out the gospel without necessarily being concerned with how we give it out. You know, you're going to hear the gospel regardless. I'm sitting on this plane and we're landing in 20 minutes and I don't want to get off and say I blew it. (laughs) So you're going to hear it. That guy's the first guy off the plane. (laughs) I've done that. (laughs) And sometimes we can just be really more focused on the relational side of things and be thinking, you know, I just really need to build a strong relationship and I need to show them the love of Christ. And we do. We do. But we just never get around to actually sharing the gospel. And I've done that. There is something to building relationships. But if I am not concerned to give the content of the most important message, the only hope they may ever hear or need to be reminded of, that's not really loving. And Paul didn't neglect either of these. And so we need to let our affection and our love for our Savior and for others, believers and unbelievers, drive and motivate our proclamation. It's both. We give the gospel and we give ourselves. They're inseparable. Well, that brings us to Roman numeral five. How the messengers imparted both the gospel and their lives. In verse nine, Paul again says, For you recall. He wants them to remember what he was like when he was with them this time to help them see just how he imparted to them not only the gospel, but also their own lives. And so verse 9 says, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So first he describes the effort they made to impart the gospel. His main point is, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. But remember, there was labor and hardship And we work night and day. Why? Because we didn't want to burden you. 
It's probably talking about a financial burden. As a frontier missionary, Paul is the first Christian stepping into these areas with the gospel. And most often in those settings, Paul's practice was not to take any money from the new believers. Now as they grew and the church became established and they wanted to give to him, then he would usually accept those gifts. But at this point in Thessalonica, he didn't accept any financial assistance because he didn't want any obstacles to the gospel. He wanted a clear path for bringing them the gospel message. And to do that, they had lots of labor and hardship. In fact, they worked night and day. Now, why does he say night and day? Why doesn't he say day and night? Well, probably... Most likely, they would begin their labors either very, very early in the morning or partway through the night, and then they would work into the beginning part of the day so their work could be finished, and then they would have the rest of the day to minister the gospel. They probably didn't sleep very much, but they did that to keep the path clear. He didn't want them to feel a burden, and that that's a helpful principle for us it's important for us to remember this is principle 9 the gospel centered ministry keeps the path to the gospel clear even when it involves sacrifice there are times when we're ministering to others when we will need to work hard and make sacrifices in order to make a clear path for the gospel ministry does involve sacrifice So verse 9 was to remind them just how Paul had labored in order to impart the gospel to them, to keep the path to the gospel clear. But remember, they imparted not only the gospel, but also their own lives. And what kind of lives did Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy impart when they were with the Thessalonians? Well, it's in verses 10 and 11. He says, You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly And blamelessly we behave toward you believers. And then he gives a comparison. He says, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. See, Paul and his co-workers walked in holiness of life. They lived devoutly. That refers to their relationship with God. And they lived uprightly. That refers to their relationships with other people. And they lived blamelessly. They were above reproach. No charges could stick to them. The gospel messengers had a holiness of life. And that showed how the gospel had changed them. And what did their changed lives, their transformed lives, look like? How did the messengers' transformed lives intersect with others? Well, that's in verse 11. He says, Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Now, back in verses 4 through 7, Paul surprised us by pointing to his motherly gentleness as a way to demonstrate that he really was approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And now we again have him looking to the love of a parent the manner of a father with his children to demonstrate the life that he had imparted to the Thessalonians. And it's so good that he did. It's so helpful because when we read devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly, we could get a picture in our minds of a person who's kind of separate from everyone else 
kind of like the monks did in the Middle Ages. They thought they could attain greater holiness of life by separating themselves from everyone else. But as Paul describes his transformation of life, he thinks of how it affected relationships. He had shepherded like a father. He had spent time with each one of them. Do you see where he uses those words in verse 11? He says, each one of you. And his focus was on individuals, like a father spends time with each of his children. A father needs to shepherd each of his children in a unique way, according to the need of the moment. So we see in verse 11, sometimes it's an exhortation. Sometimes it's a more gentle encouragement. Other times, a father is imploring his children with the gospel. Paul says something very similar over in chapter 5, verse 14. Turn over there with me. He's teaching them to do the same thing he did when he says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And we, too, need to have an individualized and personalized approach in each relationship. That's principle 10. For example, unruly people need to be warned, not encouraged in a really soft kind of way. But we don't want to admonish someone when they're faint-hearted. And we need to know the difference. And it takes prayer. It takes time. It takes listening so that we can understand what's going on in each other's lives. We can't just make assumptions. You know, we might be with somebody and we might be thinking, wow, this gal's really being unruly. I need to warn her. But when I keep listening and we ask questions and we take the time to really understand, we might find out that we had no idea what was going on. And that she shares her heart, we might discover that she really needs to be encouraged, not admonished. And sometimes we need to give both. And always we need to be patient. That's how verse 14 of chapter 5 ends. Be patient with all. Now before we move on, let's talk for just a minute about that word need. We have to be careful when we use that word need. See, when we talk about a need, ours or anyone else's, we have to be careful that we're not talking about something that's based on feelings or on something that I think I have a right to. You know, I need some me time. (laughs) That is not a right, okay? That is not a need. Rather, when we think of needs, as in what does this person need, we should think along the lines of Ephesians 4.29. You don't need to turn there right now. But it says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. That means good for building up according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. When we think about needs, we need to be thinking about how to give God's grace to someone such that they're built up in the faith. That's the need. And how that should be delivered as admonishment or as encouragement or as help is determined according to the need of the moment. All right, so that brings us to Roman numeral 5. I think it's Roman numeral 5. Six? Okay, I just was thinking that. I didn't think my notes matched my outline. <laughs> okay, we're to the summary. <laughs> so what have we seen in this passage? What was Paul's ministry characterized by? What is the bigger picture 
of gospel-centered ministry. If we had to sum it all up, what would we say? Well, here it is. This is the inseparable combination in gospel-centered ministry. Number one, it's proclamation. You've got a blank for that there. And number two, it's demonstration. That's what goes in the second blank. Proclamation and demonstration. If we're going to have gospel-centered ministry, we've got to be about the proclamation of the gospel. We have to be. You see there under number one, Paul was all about proclaiming the word of God, proclaiming the gospel. He wrote that the gospel came to them. They received the word. The word of the Lord had sounded forth from them. They spoke the gospel. They were entrusted with the gospel, so they spoke. He states it negatively in chapter 2, verse 5, when he says they didn't come with flattering speech. They had gospel speech. Verse 8, they imparted the gospel. Verse 9, they proclaimed the gospel of God. Paul was very much about the proclamation of the word of God. No doubt, gospel-centered ministry must include believers opening their mouths and actually proclaiming that Jesus Christ was crucified for sinners. And a gospel-centered ministry is not going to stop there. If we learn anything from 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2... It's that Paul didn't come in word only. We have to partner the word being proclaimed with the word being lived out or demonstrated. And that's the second point of our summary. Paul's gospel ministry was about one life engaging with another. And again, you see the references in your outline. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you. You became imitators of us. You became an example. We had motherly gentleness. We imparted to you our own lives. You are our witnesses, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you. We were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you like a father. It's clear from 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 that gospel-centered ministry means we must open our mouth and proclaim the word of God, and we must also be concerned with engaging in others' lives. That's what's meant by demonstration. Paul did that. It's what he pointed to as evidence that he really was approved by God to be a gospel minister. And our greatest example of all is Jesus. Right? The greatest proclaimer. The greatest demonstrator. So, what is the point in all of this? What is the ultimate goal in gospel ministry? Let's read verse 12. It reads, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now it starts with, so that. This verse is the whole reason why Paul did what he did. Here's the ultimate goal in ministry. It's why he was so concerned to proclaim and to demonstrate. It's why he did all the things we saw in 1 Thessalonians 1. Why he was concerned to have the right message and to be an uncommon messenger and to be imitatable and to be effective and to labor for repentance. It's why his ministry was what we've seen today in 1 Thessalonians 2. And here it is. This is why he did what he did. This is why he did what he did the way he did. And it's verse 12. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Gospel ministry is all about changed lives, transformation of life. That's what goes in your blank. 
transformation of life. Life on life with the gospel so that our changed lives are laboring for change in others' lives. It has to be. It's not gospel-centered ministry if it's not interested in transformation of life. Now look at the verse again. It reads that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you. What does God do? He calls you. He calls you. Now the emphasis here is not on when God called you in the sense of conversion. God calls you. Present tense means God is continuing to call you into his own kingdom. It's true, God already transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And now he is continually calling us into greater and greater realizations of his kingdom reign over our lives. It's like when you take a walk with little kids. Their little legs just aren't as long as yours. And they want to stop and they want to look at stuff and they get tired. And you might find yourself turning around saying, Come on! Come on! Let's go! And that's exactly how God is calling us. He's saying, Come on! God is tenderly calling us as our Father, saying, Come on! You need to see more. You need to know more. You need to experience more of my own kingdom reign in your life. What a great God we have. He's walking with us, continually calling. He's not done with us. We must still be called into greater and greater alignment with his will, with his kingdom purposes, and he won't stop until he's done. He's a good God. And that is the result of the gospel. That is why God, in his holiness and love, provided a way through his Son for sinners be reconciled to himself. That's the power of the gospel. It transforms God-haters into those who walk worthy of him and continue to respond to his call. And we participate in God's gospel transformation in our lives by shepherding our hearts with the gospel, with God's word, so that we can be a slave of that gospel in our homes, in our churches, and in the world. That is what's at stake. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Father. What an amazing God you are. Thank you. Thank you for your call. Thank you that you don't quit calling that you are earnest for us to know you better, to stand in greater and greater awe of who you are, of what you've done so that we can know you. Father, I pray that you would let the truth of your word, the truth of this lesson, the truth of your gospel continue Lord, that each one of us would treasure you and that you would use what you've given us in your word to make us fruitful, effective gospel ministers who display you well and bring you much glory. Father, as we 
break up and get ready for our discussion groups. I pray, Lord, as we change gears, um, Father, maybe as we share something about this lesson with each other or we shift into talking about the Galatians 5 lesson, Lord, please just guide the conversation. I pray that it would be true biblical fellowship, time where we are caring well for one another with your word, where we are humble and teachable and eager to be ministered to with truth, eager to see what it is you would have us learn, how you would have us grow, what we need to confess, how we can be encouraged by who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.